I'm joined on the line from the United States now by author and business consultant Alexandra Levitt, uh, who's going to discuss how AI and robotics can help rather than hinder our human progress, provided we manage it properly. I suppose the the first sort of overarching theme really that I'm taking out of the book is that despite Moore's law, which you referenced there about machines and technology um, developing at an exponential rate, there comes a point, I think, where maybe that reaches its own kind of natural limitations. I mean, I think this is a, a really critical issue because I do feel that in the near future, which is the time frame that I'm talking about in the book, so between now and, let's say, 2030, 2035, I, I don't think that machines will reach that capability. I think, and, mm. and I mentioned this, I believe, in Chapter 2, but mm. I think yeah. machines need to have consciousness or some degree of it in order to be able to fully replace humans in most types of roles. And I uh, I don't think that that's, uh, is it impossible? Absolutely not. Will it probably happen eventually? Yes. But from the perspective of what we need to be worrying about and preparing for right now, I, I don't think it's it's something that's even on the horizon. And we, we see the issues with trying to even get, and with the effective computing, trying to get machines to even simulate human emotion, even when they're programmed to behave a certain way. And it's, it's, it's very, very rudimentary mm. and very much in its primitive state. Um, in terms of what can actually be replaced by robots, we see a lot of kind of like basic core automation. Mm-hmm. Um, in the professional workspace, we see chatbots where, you know, the, the algorithm can do like one or two things, or we have like Alexa where she can set up a conference room or get food. Or I mean, mm-hmm. these are very basic yeah. implementations right now. So I think we are a long way away from not needing humans for anything. And I think the world will look very different in that scenario. There's a phrase called the, the technological singularity, which refers to when society evolves to such a point where we can't even imagine what it would be like. And mm. so I don't think we really need to worry that much about human jobs until we've reached that technological singularity. And we'll need to worry about other things at that mm. point besides jobs. <laughs> you know, but I guess that's a long way of saying that, no, I don't think it's an immediate concern. Mm-hmm. So I, mean, I guess we're going to have a world in which um, machines will be able to do the kind of the more basic sort of um, robotic kind of laborious kind of tasks and that increasingly uh, the job of the humans is to be at the, at the, the quality end of, I suppose, in terms of interactions and, uh, and making judgments and that there are probably a whole category of more empathetic, empathetic roles that humans probably won't be replaced in. I think you you mentioned in the book, and certainly other people who have written in this area have mentioned that um, nobody's going to like to be, you know, discussing their kind of cancer pro- prognosis with a robot. Much we much prefer to have a human <laughs> to to kind of tell us that to have those type of very intimate conversations. Yeah. That, yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, there's mm. all sorts of things like that, and so that's why when people talk about large segments of employee populations being replaced by automation. And what we're really looking at is large swaths of tasks within Mm. a job. So Mm. uh, law is my favorite example because that's an area where it's already happened. So if you're a lawyer, there's a variety of things that you've traditionally done. You've done Mm. legal research to determine where there's a precedent for a case. Mm -hmm. You have gone and um, done depositions. You've done jury selection, You've and you've, if you're a litigator, you argue the case you know, to, the, to the court, mm. and the only one of those things that can, that has really been taken over by robots is the research part. Yeah. That's actually been significant. 
huge part of the task, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, a huge part of the time, I, I guess. And, yeah. Hmm. And they don't anymore. So that's kind of the model that I'm looking at, where most professional jobs will have components mm. that they won't, that humans won't need to do anymore, mm. and that they can focus on other things. The key is to be able to figure out what those things are, where you can add value, mm. and being able to to make sure that you are training, upskilling, reskilling in the mm. areas where you're going to be needed, and you're not relying on very basic technical skills. I mean, the, mm. the, the funniest thing is, is we're in this major labor shortage mm. right now worldwide around te- technology professionals, information technology specifically, and that's going to be one of the first areas to go. And that, that's where I see machines take over. Hello? Yeah, sorry, you just faded out there for a second, Alexandra. Yeah, just on the last few seconds. Yeah, you, Can you just maybe repeat the last point? It's just the line went... Just talking about the robot in the uh, in in the corporation, I, I was fascinated reading the story that you uh, you detail there of Emily Dreyfus and how she had uh, kind of created this, uh, I suppose, robot um, uh, version of herself, for the want of a better thing, with the iPad in the office, and all of the complications that this had actually caused. So as you can see, the advantages that you're there, in a sense, you're you're almost there in the office and you're interacting and you're at the conference table. But the complications, even in terms of, shall we say, what was perceived to be kind of inappropriate behaviour of kind of, you know, people lifting up the robot and, you know, and how uncomfortable this had made her feel, naturally enough, was was very interesting. Yeah, exactly. I mean, there's going to be a lot of these ethical mm. slash moral things that are, that are going to come up. It's, it's going to be like the Wild West. We still <laughs> see that. Yeah. All, even with the intellectual property concerns that that were that arose with the internet, you know, mm. twenty years ago, we still haven't resolved a lot of those. Mm. And you, the journalist, know better than any. I mean, like, what what do you do when someone copies your piece and just posts it somewhere else? Like, mm. you sort of have recourse, but not really. And we're going to have some of the same stuff, mm. with, and more of it probably 
Yeah, yeah. Just, just to kind of give me a little bit more on that. Are you suggesting that maybe someone might steal our intellectual property in terms of our virtual, the virtual version of ourselves? Is that is that what you're alluding to? Yeah. Um, you know, I, I think I think that a lot. I think what we need to be aware of is a lot of these issues are going to come up, mm. and we tend to be in our world very reactive. Mm. Something happens, and then we figure out how to deal with it. But really, the smart thing is to be like, okay, well, what are some of the things? And, and I, I think it's like the second to last chapter, or the last chapter, mm. where I talk about, you know, what are some of the ethical issues mm. that that could come up? I mean, who owns the version of our the, the property that our virtual selves? Produces like this. Yeah. If you do that on company time, is that owned by the company? If who, and I, I think that, especially given mm. our global diversity and the fact that different countries have different laws, that there'll be no geographical boundaries per se with this stuff. I think mm. it's really complicated, yeah. and I think it's it's going to be like you know we say here in America, the Wild West of just everyone <laughs> kind of right. standing for themselves and hoping you don't get in trouble. Sure, sure. Um, no. Okay, I suppose the other the thing I really want to look at is is uh, you know virtual virtual reality and augmented reality and uh, you know in the book I think you go into the um, the distinctions between the two. Um, bro- broadly speaking, could you maybe talk me through the the pros and cons of VR and and and, and, and augmented reality as well and how how you would see that? You mean for use in the workplace? Yes. Well, you know, it's funny. I don't really see a whole lot of cons, mm. except that I think the technology right now is clunky. Yeah. Um, and it's not it's, it's, it's not cheap, and yeah. it's not easy. It's, it's kind of like why I imagine video conferencing didn't take off for so long. I mean, mm. if you look mm. at the history of video conferencing, video conferencing has been around for, like, at least 20 years, 25 years. Yeah. And it never, it never took off because it was just hard to do. It was hard to use the phone, and then you had to have a screen, and then it was just like, it, it, it was complicated. So that's kind of where we see VR and AR right now. It's not really accessible to the majority of people, and it's also expensive. Mm. But what those are really the only cons. I think as the technology gets more sophisticated, mm. we're going to see a whole bunch of pros, namely that... You can be, well, so first of all, the difference between AR and VR. AR is where you're in your current situation, but it's just you're receiving information that improves that current situation. So if you're on the street in Tokyo and you want a cup of coffee at Starbucks, your AR console will tell you, okay, well, you know, here's the Starbucks and and we'll go ahead and order it for you, but you're still in Tokyo Mm. doing that. It's just that it's giving you other information that will improve the experience. That's augmented reality. Mm-hmm. Virtual reality is where you can be transported to any anywhere you want, any mm. simulated place where you can then engage as, as an avatar in mm-hmm. that world. Mm. And the, the advantage of that I see is, oh, there are two massive advantages. One is training, mm-hmm. not having to go somewhere physically to get trained. You can really put people in any kind of scenario you want. You can put them in a risky scenario. You can put them in an onboarding type of scenario, and you don't actually have to have them in any real danger or in anything that they would feel very uncomfortable because it it might be um, something that they've never done before. Mm. I also like it from a, um, a cultural education perspective. I think it's still pretty expensive for most people to have the experience of seeing the world. Yeah, and I um, 
think that virtual reality will provide the opportunity to get what I call more global competence or the ability to understand how business is done in different cultures. And so as an example, when I went over to the UK to work, live and work there for six months, um, I was like, oh, I'm going to get some global competence learning, um, you know, how business is done in, in London, for example. Yeah. And, you know, the people in London laughed at me and they said, you're not getting global competence. London is just like the U.S. Like, yes. there's no, if you really want to gain global competence, go to India. Yes. Well, I can't afford to go to India. So, actually, I am going to India. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but, um, at the time, I was yeah. like, well, like, I can't go to India. Like, but, but that's true. And most people don't have that mm-hmm. accessible to them now. But with virtual reality, I can go to India. I can be in India. I can learn how business is done there. I can work with people who are, who are Indian. Um, I can do everything that I would normally do if I were there. And mm-hmm. that I see is a huge learning opportunity mm-hmm. for everyone. And mm-hmm. as the technology gets better and more accessible, I think it's going to be really, really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, well, we talked about the deficits that, that robots have in terms of their lack of understanding of um, like human emotions, for example, and the nuances. Um, there are advantages as well, because I think you referenced this in the book, that actually humans sometimes operate with unconscious bias, which is one thing that uh, I guess robots probably won't have. They do. Mm. Well, it's not, it's not unconscious bias, let's put it yeah. this way. The problem with the way um, we program robots is that they're programmed by humans. Mm. So some of that bias gets programmed. transferred <laughs> over to the algorithm. Right. But it's still better, in my mm. opinion, than mm. just somebody making some human being making a decision on the fly. Mm. It's still going to be more scientific. It's going to be more objective. There's mm. so much software out there now, mm-hmm. particularly around recruiting, mm. around you know removing names from resumes and making sure that all candidates are presented in an equal. Removing any information that could trigger people's bias. And I see so much potential in that because even if robots have a little bit of bias. They don't have the bias that we have. Yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they wouldn't have the bias the, um, in terms of maybe ethnicity or gender that perhaps some humans might have. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have the, the the bias in terms of say uh, gender bias or ethnicity bias, or you know, a, a kind of a cultural bias, thinking that oh well, all all people of such and such a race are are have this particular characteristic, uh, unless they've been programmed in that way, which presumably they wouldn't be. Well, right. I mean, the thing that worries me about the programming is just the language that's used Mm. in the programming. I think sometimes it's unconscious from the part of the programmer, so they don't realize they're using certain um, certain Mm. language to Mm. describe things that might be biased. Mm. That's tough, and that gets transferred over to the robot. So, Mm. um, you know, again, until robots have their own consciousness, and then they'll probably have their own biases. Maybe they'll be biased against humans. I don't Mm. think bias is one of those things that's going away anytime soon. But certainly just... Um, this recruitment software boom has been really, really promising because that's the area where I, I do see a lot of people, you know, whether you're a woman or whether you're someone of color, not getting the opportunities that you might simply because you're not hmm. considered in the same way. Sure, sure, sure. If we're represented through uh, the medium of, say, an avatar or a robot, I'm kind of I'm going back to Emily Dreyfus's example because I'm fascinated by this. What are the implications there for the uh, the culture within an organization if you have 
let's say there's more of these Emily Dreyfuses about, and maybe we have a situation where in in a, in a boardroom meeting there's three or four robots and three or four humans. How how is that gonna how is that gonna work? Is there an advantage to being a human, or is there an advantage to being a robot, or how do you see that playing out? Well, I think everybody is going to need to ideally rotate in and out of those type of roles. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think it's it's still hard. Even if you're a telepresence robot, you're not really there. Mm-hmm. Unless they're really going to improve this technology or everyone's going to be a telepresence robot, mm-hmm. you're still a remote employee. And mm-hmm. there is no substitute for the participation of and, mm-hmm. and collaboration of humans with one another. Mm-hmm. There simply isn't. And so if you are one of those people who, because you're a telepresence robot, you've never met your colleagues in person, mm. that's, that's problematic. You're not going to have the same experience. And so I think in an ideal world, everyone's got kind of a telepresence, but they've also got a real presence. And mm. sometimes your real presence shows up and sometimes your telepresence shows up, but you've still got some human okay. connection with the people that you're working with. Sure. So ideally a blend really is what, I mean, I suppose the, yeah. the robot the robot will give you reach and, fre- and flexibility and, and, and enable you to cover spaces that you can't physically cover, but the physical presence is, is ex- still extremely important and, and, and advisable to some extent at least, yeah. Yeah, and yeah. I think even if everybody is remote, like if say we're going into one of these virtual reality scenarios where you're just, you're, you and your colleagues are just a bunch of avatars, mm. I don't know that, that that's not going to get the same result. I mean, we haven't really seen that happen yet, but yeah. I don't think it's going to get the same result as having people in person. The research has shown that having people in person results in more creativity, better ideas, better morale. Mm. There's just something about, I mean, we've, been, we've evolved for millennia to, to be social creatures, and yeah. it doesn't quite do the job to have an avatar be your social creature you have to have those in-person cues yeah yeah, i do think it needs to be a blend and all companies need to consider that people still need to see each other sometimes it doesn't have to be all the time but sometimes Mm -hmm. yeah yeah absolutely Okay, one of the other themes I, I want to look at is, is I suppose, the uh, things like the changing nature of uh, of work organisations. And one of the things I found very interesting is your your um, talk about swarms. Um, I guess, I suppose, your analysis of swarms are that they're kind of they're interesting, but very very difficult at the same time for people to to navigate. That people will have lots of Lots of opportunity, perhaps, to engage in lots and lots of projects, but perhaps they're going to miss out on some of the deeper um, networking and bonding and mentoring and all of that. So could you maybe talk to me a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I see swarms as being a – that's an area where there's a, a pro and a con, that, that the teams will be much more quickly put together. They will mm. be uh, quicker to disband. They will accomplish things much more quickly. They'll be much more – specified in terms of what they're working on. Mm. So the pros of, of this, of course, are that you get to know a lot more people. Mm. You have a, a lot more variety in your work. Mm. You, If you don't like something that you're doing, you're going to be off it in a minute doing something else. You don't need to worry about getting bored yeah. or yeah. frustrated. Like It's usually going to be pretty quick. Mm. Um, the cons are that you don't have time to really focus on something for a long period and develop a really deep area of expertise around it. Most people are going to be pretty wide, but not as deep in terms of their expertise. Mm. And, uh, you know, some people, for some people that's not preferable. Just like mm. I like to say, you know, contract work is something that's not going to be preferable to everybody. Mm. But I think no matter what kind of work structure you have, there's going to yeah. be people who like it and people who don't like it. So sure. overall, I would say these shorter-term 
more fun and engaging and mm. interesting for people. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm personally, I mean, I work on them now. Yeah. So I'm, I'm excited mm-hmm. every time. I, mean, I just had a new project coming yesterday. Mm-hmm. It's going to be over by the middle of October. Yeah. It's like a two week project, and yeah. I'm gonna, and I've got a total, I've got a completely different team that I've never worked with before. Yeah. yeah. So it's like these. This is how it starts, and mm. I'm excited because you have results. Mm. And at the end, and, and as I talk about in the book, the, the big thing is keeping those relationships with people who you might not have worked with for very long. It's, that's, I think, challenging. Because when you work with someone for a year or two years, you really develop rapport. But if sure. you don't have that opportunity, then mm. it's going to be tougher. Mm. And I guess the other downside of it, and, and I, I guess people will go into this with their eyes open, and as you say, it's not for everyone, um, Alexandra, but there's no real kind of social protection there, really, is there, in the sense that you might have it within a larger organisation, might sort of say, okay, you've given loyalty to me for the last, say, number of years, and you've worked extremely hard, and now we recognise, uh, you know what, you're sick, and uh, you're not going to be capable of contributing to the organisation in the same way for the next three months and we'll support you through that. But in a swarm, you're not going to get that. You just, you, you're just not at the party. And, and could you yeah, see that as a danger? I, I think that that's, I think that's valid. Mm. I think that the number of people working on their own who have no safety net is yeah. going to increase. And there is something, people complain about working in large organizations, but there mm. is something to be said for, mm. you know, family medical leave. I don't know what you guys yeah. have in, have in yeah. Ireland, but like yeah. for us, it's like someone gets sick, mm-hmm. you're, you, they have to keep your job and mm. you are, you know, paid, you get to keep your benefits. And if you are on your own, like me, I yeah. don't have that. If I don't work for three months, I don't get paid for three months mm. and I probably mm. lose my clients. So yeah. it's, yeah. um, I think this is going to be an area, and this is probably the biggest concern that I have. Mm-hmm. People ask me like, oh, are you so worried about automation? No. Mm-hmm. Are you worried that human jobs are going to disappear? No. What mm-hmm. I'm worried about are that human human employment is going to change. Mm-hmm. It's not that people won't be employed. They will, mm-hmm. but the way they'll be employed is going to be something that a lot of people are not going to be comfortable with and are yeah. going to burn out of and get very stressed. And I think the mental health is going to take a major toll. That's my concern. Mm-hmm. It's not yeah. that we won't have jobs. Yeah, and the me- mental health is, is, is fascinating because it's already a, a, an enormous issue in society in terms of, shall we say, the, the impact that technology is already having in, in, in mental health in terms of um, you know, problems that we see around social media and isolation and, and depression caused by um, lack of real relationships in the, in, in the world. These are big issues already, and if anything, these are just going to get worse, I suspect. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. You, you are absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a concern. Any 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 answers or any um any pointers as to how we 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 as a society can address this? Well, yeah, it's interesting. Different countries have done different things. Like mm. I love France's mm. uh, situation recently around the you can't send business emails outside of business hours. Yeah, the employees were just like working around the clock. Now mm. I don't know if that would fly in Ireland. That would not fly here in the US. <laughs> yeah, that would yeah. never ever happen. Mm. But. It, it, it just speaks to a country. What I like about it is the country actually taking a step yeah. to protect their people's mental health. And I think mm. we need to do more of that kind of thing, even if it's not that specific thing. Mm. Um, and, and, I, and I don't mm. – I, I see it kind of getting out of control, to be honest with you. Mm. I don't really see too much regulation around it, at least not here. Um, mm. Maybe in some parts of – some more enlightened parts of Europe that mm. would that would happen. But mm. I, I see 
it becoming like a runaway train where it just we have more and more technology and we're on more and more and mm. there are no boundaries mm. and mm. I, I see it getting worse before mm. it gets better for sure. Sure. Could it not be said that maybe technology could have a role in solving its own kind of um, problem there in the sense that maybe uh, one of the next areas of, of technology might be how, how you manage technology and how you um, protect yourself from technology, dare I say? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I, do, I already do a talk about um, time management where about half of the time we spend yeah. on, okay, well, how do you manage your smartphone? Mm. Your smartphone doesn't manage you. Yeah. And, and, but, and that's something that I think, it, yes, technology could, could help with some solutions in, in terms of what I recommend is time tracking software. Mm, so yeah, exactly. When you, um, like, you, to help you actually figure out how much time are you wasting, how much time are you spending, mm. are you, how much are you actually on your phone, to, for yeah. people to mm-hmm. be able to look at a, a document that tells them that they are actually on their phone, like, 15 hours a day, that's mm. stark. Yeah. And I think people get a really rude awakening mm-hmm. when they learn that kind of information. Thank you very much for, for taking the time to talk to me.